Our reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This is God's word. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before the angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this ends the reading of God's Word. Well, as we uh, pick up this morning in our sermon series, the letters to the churches in Revelation, we're going to be introduced to the church at Sardis this morning. And as you heard read, this church is a church that had a reputation that preceded itself. Now, reputations are, are something that are, that are very interesting. Reputations take a long time to, to earn or to gain, but they can be lost very quickly, sometimes in an instant. Reputations also are interesting because uh, people or corporations or organizations can gain a reputation in the eyes and in the mind of people that doesn't necessarily map onto reality. For instance, I don't know how many of you are enthusiasts about crime dramas or like crime podcasts or a big thing right now, but inevitably in all of those documentaries or, or shows or crime podcasts, they'll interview somebody and they'll say, I, I lived right next door to Joe the criminal I, like my whole life and he was such a stand-up guy. And in, inevitably, the reputation of Joe did not match the reality of Joe's existence as a criminal. We can have reputations of people that don't match what's real. And in our passage this morning, Jesus comes to us with a reality check. Does the reality of our life individually and our life together as a church match our reputation? In other words, are we Christians in name only, or are we Christians in the sense that our whole life is devoted to following after Jesus, both individually and corporately? This morning, in this passage, Jesus is inviting us 
to get real with him. To stop keeping him at arm's length and to let him invade our reality. And so before we go any further, let's pause and let's pray that Jesus would do that for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as you encourage us in this text, we need ears to hear you this morning. We need you to come and enliven our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would break through this morning by the power of your word and spirit and that you would change our hearts. Lord Jesus, we recognize that we are doing something here that is not of value unless we rely on your power. And so, Lord, we rely on you to teach us this morning from your word and transform us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Jesus has some strong words for this church at Sardis. Let's pick up and read again uh, halfway through verse 1 down to verse 2. This is what Jesus says to the church. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now, for those of you who have been with us throughout the course of this sermon series on the opening chapters of Revelation, I have a question for you, kind of a pop quiz if you've been tracking with us through this series. What is missing here at the beginning of this letter that we have come to expect from the other letters? What piece of that puzzle is missing? There's no, there's no commendation. Right? Jesus doesn't say anything here that's good about the churches. Typically, as we've been studying these letters, we've found that Jesus will come to them and he'll say, uh, I've seen your works and they're commendable. Even the church in Thyatira, which Pastor David preached the letter to them with us last week, a church that was engrossed in sexual sin and idolatry of all different shapes and sizes, Jesus comes to them and gives a pretty glowing recommendation at the start. He says, I know your steadfastness and your patient endurance. And yet here, to the church in Sardis, nothing. I think that's significant. We need to keep that in mind As we continue on, Jesus just launches right into this rebuke against this church. And what's the main point of his rebuke? You can see it there in verse 1. Is that they have the reputation of being alive, but that they are actually on the inside dead. Now the churches in the surrounding region in Asia Minor, to where all these letters are written, viewed Sardis as a church that was bubbling with activity and life, right? They ran great church programs. Uh, Sardis ran the best vacation Bible school that Asia Minor had to offer in the first century, right? They, They were gathering crowds on Sunday mornings that all had a smile on their face. They all proudly displayed their first church of Sardis like decal with their cool logo on the back of their car, On the outside, they had all the signs of a church that was alive, but they were dead. And can you imagine being one of the surrounding churches in the region, getting the letter of Revelation and reading through these addresses to the churches and coming to Sardis and being like, really? 
This church, the church that's bustling with life on the outside, they're dead inside? I think it would have come as a shock to them. They might have even claimed, Jesus, aren't you being a little harsh with this church? But he's not. Because their name, their reputation, did not match up with reality. And so the question that comes then is, what was the reality of the spiritual condition at Sardis that led to this rebuke? Like, what was going on that made Jesus say to them, you think you're alive, but you're dead? Well, the text doesn't tell us explicitly, but we can infer what's going on from the command that Jesus gives at the beginning of verse 2. So if you look at verse 2, it begins with the command, wake up. Now, you only tell people who are asleep to wake up. So the assumption is, this church is asleep. In other words, this church's heart had grown spiritually drowsy. This church, while bustling with life on the outside, had grown apathetic toward God in their hearts. They had all the things that made a quote-unquote good church on the outside, but their hearts were lifeless and sound asleep. They were like an antique car, which had beautifully been preserved on the outside with a shiny red exterior paint and polish on the tires and whatever else makes an antique car cool because I don't really know cars. But if you opened up the hood on that car, it would reveal a car that was a car in name only because the engine had rotted. It didn't run. It had nothing that gave it power or life. The thing that gives the car life and energy and power is not functioning. Polished on the outside, dead on the inside. That's this church at Sardis. And so as we read this letter, I think it's appropriate for us as a church to open the hood of our car and run a few diagnostic tests. I don't think any of us who've been a part of our church for a while, who know our church, think that our church has a particularly bad reputation around our city. In fact, one of the things that brings me the most joy as a pastor is often I talk to people about our church and they, ha- they hear about us in good ways, um, and in a lot of ways that showcase that there is spiritual life and health and vibrancy here, which, praise the Lord, that brings me such joy as a pastor to hear those things. But are there areas in which we are not alive to God? Are there areas in which there are hustle and bustle, where we have the appearance of spiritual life and activity around our church, but actually... It's just a facade. Or what about your own life? Do people know you as an upstanding Christian only because your life is busy with religious activity? Or do they know that you are an upstanding Christian because of the quality of your life and the vibrancy of your relationship with Jesus? Or to try to get at it another way, let's think about what are some characteristics of a spiritually vibrant life and a spiritually vibrant church. I'm going to give us seven characteristics I think we get 
from the rest of the scriptures about what a spiritually vibrant church and life looks like. And just think about these with me for a second. So a spiritually vibrant life or church has deep, honest prayer and dependence on God. They have a recognition of spiritual warfare. They ruthlessly pursue holiness and the spiritual disciplines. They obey the radical commands of Jesus. Commands like loving your enemy and giving your life to the poor. They're quick to forgive. They have relationships with people who are not just like them. They engage in both personal evangelism and world missions. These are signs of spiritual life. And so the question for us as we hear these things read is, is that your experience of Christianity? Is that your experience of this church? Is that what our life together looks like? And no matter how you answer that question, we are all tempted to fall asleep to the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done and who we are in light of that. We are all tempted to ignore the things that truly matter just to focus on how clean and shiny the paint job looks on the outside of our car. And so how do we fight this temptation towards spiritual sleepiness? How do we push back against that as a people? Well, this passage tells us that we have to stand up. In order to do that, we have to stand up and face the reality of who Jesus is and who we are. Would you look with me at verses 2 and 3 again? He says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus comes to this drowsy church with the grace of an alarm clock in his hand and the grace of morning light to which he opens up the the curtains and a cup of coffee and hands clapping, and he says, wake up. Wake up. Stop sleeping. That verb, wake up, is actually the command that's used throughout the New Testament and several other places to refer to spiritual warfare. It's, it's, it's a, almost a battle term. It means to be alert, to be on guard. In other words, Jesus is telling the church, it's time for war. It's no time to sleep when the battle is at hand, when the battle rages right outside of your door. And the people of Sardis, given their history and background, would have felt the force of this command. You see, Sardis was a city that was geographically protected. It was elevated up on a hill. And so it made it very difficult for other military powers to invade and conquer this city. And so oftentimes the people of Sardis would grow lax in their military defenses. And almost all the time they were okay. But twice in the city's history, a foreign military power took the hill took the city, and everybody kind of was left looking around like, oh, that just happened. 
They weren't ready for it. They were lulled to sleep. They were secure when they shouldn't have been. And this church, like their ancestors in the city before them, was encouraged to wake up to the reality that they were not living in a time of peace, but a time of war. It was not a time for sloth, but a time for action. And church, the same is true for us. Many of us, particularly in America, have let our comfortable circumstances drown out the urgency of our spiritual lives. As we talked about at the beginning of this sermon series in Revelation chapter 1, we have been living in the last days since Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. And one of the characteristics of the last days is the testing and trial of the church at the, at the hands of her enemy. Satan wants nothing more for us as an American church than for us to live secure lives, thinking that everything's comfortable, everything's okay, that we are at peace, when in reality the battle is raging outside of us and inside of us we are about to be overrun. He wants us to settle for playing religious games. He wants us to settle for being comfortable with a religious facade. He wants us to neglect prayer and attentiveness to the word of God. Church, it's not the time to doze off. We must wake up. And the other commands of these two verses flesh out more for us what it looks like to wake up, to come alive to God here. Uh, Particularly, I have in mind the command in verse 2 to strengthen what remains and the command at the beginning of verse 3 to remember what you received and heard. Now, one of my favorite things about summertime is the ability to sit with good friends around a fire long into the evening and to enjoy that time together. There are a few things, I think, on this earth that get us a closer taste of what the new heavens and new earth are going to be like than that. But there comes that point in every night when you're having a fire with people, you see a few yawns start to pop up in the group, and you all look around, and the fire's starting to dwindle, and you're like, okay, are we going to put another log on this thing and stoke it up and keep this going? Or are we going to go to sleep and let this fire die out? Maybe pour some water on it so we can go to bed a little sooner, depending on the mood of the evening. And that's precisely the decision which Jesus gives the church at Sardis. You see, this church had received the gospel earnestly, had embraced it. To use the language of chapter 1, the fire on their lampstand was kindled. Their spiritual fire was burning, but unbeknownst to them, they had been deceived to think it's okay. They haven't been giving careful attention to make sure that the fire stays lit. And so as it says in verse 2, their fire is about to die. If they don't stoke it and throw more logs on it, it's done for. And so into this context, Jesus calls them and he calls us to throw more logs on the fire by returning to the fuel of spiritual life. What he says in verse 3, they had received, he calls us to return to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
the good news of Jesus Christ is the fuel for spiritual life. You see, the gospel of Jesus will not let us hide behind a religion in name only. Because the gospel makes us do business with reality. The gospel puts a mirror in front of us and makes us face who we actually are. It shows us the depths of our depravity and sin. It shows us the way in which our rebellion against God has ramifications for ourselves, for our relationships with others, and ultimately for our eternal relationship with our creator. And the gospel tells us that we are helpless to fix this on our own terms, that we are fatally flawed. The gospel awakens us to the reality that our situation apart from God is dire. As verse 3 says, for those who do not wake up, Jesus will come against them in judgment. But the gospel also speaks to us that Jesus Christ has opened up a new reality for all who place their trust in him. The gospel proclaims to us that we are not damned to the reality that we have created in our own sin because God has stepped into our time and place reality in order to solve it and fix it. He took our sin upon himself and he bore the judgment of God that we all deserved. And now to anyone who trusts in him, he gives a new name as it says in verse 5. He gives us white robes. He calls us righteous. He calls us saints. You see, the gospel tells us that on our own, our reality is bleak, that we are far worse off than we could ever imagine. But the gospel also tells us of the new reality that Jesus Christ, by his life, death, and resurrection, has opened up for us, a reality in which we can experience life like we never have before, and joy and transformation in relationship with God. And church, when we return to the reality of who God is and who we are and what he has done for us in the gospel, it ought to swallow up our spiritual lethargy and drowsiness. The good news of Jesus is like caffeine for our sleepy hearts. Church, the encouragement this morning is simple. Remember what you have received in Christ. Return to him. Return to the good news. And while this is simple, it's also one of the most difficult things to do because it means that we have to get real with God about the mess we've made of our own lives. So the encouragement this morning is to stop hiding, stop pretending, stop running, stop going through the motions, stop putting paint on the outside of the car while the engine inside of it is dead. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ with your whole self again today. And you see, remembrance of the gospel as we live lives of repentance and faith, that is the beginning and foundation of vibrant life with Christ. 
Those seven characteristics that I listed earlier in the sermon of a spiritually vibrant person or church start here. They start with the gospel, with the foundation of repentance and faith. You see, here's how this works. And so many of us know this from experience. When you start out in your Christian life, you think, man, I, I don't know how it could get any worse than this. I don't know how I could ever be more aware of how messed up and flawed and sinful I am. And then you live two, three, five years as a Christian, and you're like, oh man, now I don't know how I could ever realize how more sinfully flawed and messed up that I am. You see, as we grow in our Christian life, it's not that we sin more, but we become more aware of our sin. Jesus makes us more aware of that. But at the same time, as we become more aware of our own sin, that we have a growing sense of our own sin, we also have a growing sense and awareness of Jesus' love and the sufficiency of his death to cover those sins. As our sins grow in our eyes, so does the glory and magnificence and power and majesty of the gospel. And that's the Christian life. Daily, we come back to that. Daily, we return to Jesus. And as we do that and our hearts are inflamed by the gospel, these things that are characteristic of a spiritual life fall out from that. As we rejoice and worship in who Jesus is for us, we delight to be in prayer, talking to this God who loved us like this. We delight to pursue holiness, to become like this God who gave everything for us. We delight to share the good news with others so that they can get in on the life and joy and happiness we have in God. We delight to forgive others because we recognize ourselves as the chief of sinners in need of forgiveness. The gospel is the foundation of vibrancy and life with God. You can build a whole life on that. So church, let's return to that this morning. Let's see our sin for what it is. See Jesus for who he is and flee from sin and run to him. And let's do that day after day, after day, after day, and grow in the joy of knowing Jesus together. And to all of us who pay attention to our hearts like this, for all of us who continue to put wood on the fire by remembering the gospel, by remembering who Jesus is for us, there is a magnificent promise held out in this passage. Look with me at verses four and five. He says, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. You see, although this church was broadly alive in name only, there are a few names in Sardis. 
for whom their name matched their reality. There were a few who were truly alive. There were a few who did not soil their garments through apathy and forsaking the gospel and growing cold, but who kept the fire alive. And look at what we are promised if we are like these few in Sardis who continue to pursue life in Christ through remembering the gospel, through repentance and faith. For those of us who continue on this pathway, there is rock-solid security before the throne of God for you. Your name is in the book of life, and it cannot be erased. It is written in permanent marker for those who endure. And in the same way, Jesus also says, he's not content for those names to be shut up in a book somewhere. Jesus says, I will proclaim these names before my Father and before his angels. All of heaven will hear of the names of those who persevere in following Jesus with their whole heart. There's security in that church. But let me close this morning with this encouragement. Some of you in here have been in church for many years. Some of you might even say that you've, you've been a Christian as long as you can remember. And yet you have not ever said to God, or it's been a long time since you've said to God something like this. Lord, I can't fix this on my own. I cannot do this on my own strength. I am more sinful than I ever dared to believe. I need your help. I am a notoriously heavy sleeper. And uh, when I was in college, I actually almost slept through a final exam one time. It was frightening. It was absolutely horrible. I, I woke up, I hit my snooze button a number of times, and I eventually, you know, you, wait, you, you roll over in that realization that like, oh no, I might, be, I might be overslept too much. And I roll over and I look at the clock and I'm like, there's only 30, 30 more minutes left in my exam slot time. And so I threw on my clothes, I grabbed, uh, grabbed my backpack, and I sprinted to class. And I got there with about 20 minutes left in the exam period, and my professor was very gracious, and, uh, and he let me finish out the exam at the full time starting from when I got there, which was very kind of him. But we all know that feeling of panic that ensues when we wake up late, right? It's a panic that almost like hangs over the whole day from that moment onward. It's the worst. It's one of my least favorite things in this world. But some of us here have received the gospel at some point in our life, but maybe you've grown spiritually drowsy over time. For some of you, maybe you've never actually fully come alive to God. You've never embraced the gospel such that it affects all of your life. In a sense, all of us, whether we've been drowsy for two days or two years or 20 years, in some way, we have all overslept our alarm. These alarms that Jesus sounds telling us to wake up. But the good news of this text is that we have not yet overslept our exam. 
There is an opportunity this morning again for us to come alive, to wake up to the reality of who Jesus is. It is not too late for us this morning. It is not too late for you to get real with God, to see your sin for what it is, and to see his sacrifice for you for what it is, and to embrace him in love and faith. Jesus wants to jolt you out of your slumber with the goodness of his gospel and reinvigorate your whole life this morning. Do not ignore him. Do not ignore his alarm. As verse 3 tells us, there will come a day when those who have not woken up will get jolted out of sleep only to find the exam has passed them by and judgment is upon them. If we sleep through these alarms throughout our life, we will miss the reality of Jesus' grace. But if we wake up, if we come alive to the gospel, then we can begin now to experience the kind of life that we will have with Jesus on into eternity. Life that truly makes us alive from the inside out. Would you pray with me and prepare as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together? Father, we thank you that by your word and spirit this morning that you've given us another encouragement to repent and trust in Christ. I pray today that we would listen, that we would have ears to hear, and that we would come alive. And that today our hearts would resonate with the reality of the good news of Jesus Christ. That though we are the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ is a greater Savior still. Help us to know this and come alive to this today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.